You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Kelsey Peace. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Later in the program, Dark Past, Bright Future, a segment produced by Bring It On's Liz Mitchell, featuring accounts of Black history that often go overlooked. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have coverage on the most recent meetings of the Monroe County Council and the Bloomington Utilities Service Board. That's coming up next in your local headlines. At the Monroe County Council meeting on February 13th, Soil and Water Conservation District Manager Martha Miller gave an update on the soil and water conservation projects that are ongoing. We are celebrating 80 years of Monroe County Conservation. That's pretty exciting. So as I'm digging through the archives and records to prepare for this monumental event, um, I come across some interesting information. One was that since 2013, Monroe County Soil and Water and our federal and state partners have put $6,242,257 of conservation on the ground through private landowners. So that's working with private individuals since 2013. Our request for assistance continues to grow. Um, We are just, we're flooded. Our federal partners are flooded. So it just continues to grow, but it's exciting to know that this is happening out there. Um, One of those things that we do is watershed work. Um, We have an interactive map on our website in case you want to see it of how it works with the watersheds. Um, Everybody knows about Friends of Lake Monroe and, um, you know, kind of the awesome stuff that they're doing, but all the other watersheds affect drinking water as well. So we currently are in the planning stages with Bean Blossom. We just got the approval and the go-ahead from item on that one. Woo! Um, So if we have anybody who wants to be a stakeholder, let me know. Lower Salt Creek, which is where the water from the lake drains into. Lawrence County Soil and Water has that one, but we're partnering with them. We're going to be doing all we can to help the agricultural and urban small farm ag community in that watershed. And then IDEM has guaranteed us that in 2025, because we also applied for Indian Creek, which is in the southern part of the county, we're the headwaters of that small watershed. But because they were doing a TMDL, they asked us if we would hold off one year and they've guaranteed us implementation funding as we plan that watershed as well. Council member Pete Iverson asked for clarification on a term Miller used when explaining an Indiana Department of Environmental Management project. When you're talking about the IDEM project, you used yes. an acronym TMDL. Could you explain that for us? Sure. Total maximum daily load is um, they will pull water samples once a month for 12 months, and then they will pull them at least twice, I think it is, after high velocity encounters. And they're measuring the total maximum daily load of 
of nutrients. So the number one pollutant in Indiana waters by volume is sediment. And that's an issue that we have um, statewide. And um, because Indian Creek was impacted so significantly by I-69, um, IDEM has done TMDLs on most other watersheds in the state, but that's one they hadn't. And so that's one that, that they're looking at, looking at what, what's polluting those waters. Is it um, you know, high phosphorus rates, high nitrogen rates, sediment? Is it killing the dissolved oxygen for the wildlife, whatever? Um, so that's what IDEM will be doing. Great, thank you. Yeah. Next, Sheriff Ruben Marte gave an update on the jail and the work that they have been doing to translate their jail policies into Spanish with the help of Bloomington Outreach Coordinator, Jimena Martinez. As you know, when when we first took over, the, the, the chief and I and the jail commander sat down and tried to decide what do we need to do quickly? What do we need to do to make things fair in, in the actual jail? And one of the things that came up was for our Latino uh, residents in there. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because we, we provide each inmate with a handbook do's and don'ts while you're not facility, okay? And to be fair, we didn't have one in Spanish. And we knew for the fact that was going to be a major undertaking to translate that verbiage into Spanish, okay? Because you've got different dialects. So when we took over, we reached out to a person by the name, I really want to give her a shout out and a very big thank you because without her, I wouldn't be able to say this tonight to you. So her name is Jimena Martinez. She is a Latino Outreach Coordinator for the Community and Family Resources Division for the City of Bloomington. So when we reached out to her, she was more than gracious to say, yes, I would do it. We knew we need to give her some time to do that, to do it right, correctly. Um, so we could sit in front of you and say, hey, we, we got this accomplished. Uh, but I really want to thank her because it took us some months. Now, that's on top of her responsibility to what she does for the city. Okay. So, so. For her to do this, uh, it took a lot of our efforts, and I personally want to thank her tremendously because this was a major deal for us to get this done. I don't think I don't think Monroe County Sheriff ever has it done before in the past, so this is the first time for all of us. So it's a major hurdle, major major uh, success story for us uh, to be able to provide um, residents that speak Spanish and understand English uh, their policy for the jail process. So with that being said, again, to Jimena Martinez, thank you so much for helping the Norwalk County Sheriff's out and the citizens of Norwalk County. Councilmember Jennifer Crossley followed up, asking how many inmates are in need of the translated version. Marte responded. Thank you for that update. Just for us to understand the scope of um, how that really affects um, the inmates, can you tell us approximately the um, percentage of population of Latino um, inmates that we currently have? It, it's a small percentage. Okay. It really is. But to be fair, you know, how do you how do you have someone follow the rules if they don't know what the rules are? Mm -hmm. And then we have people that speak Spanish in the facility. But, you know, how do we make sure that they understand and they, you know, receive the information in a timely manner? So for us, this is really a big, big deal for us because it is a small percentage, but it's still something still that needs to be deal. done. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. And thank you for the work on that. Next, the council heard a request to appoint Dr. Lisa Hanner Robinson to the Monroe County Board of Health. Council member Trent Deckard commented on the application. Securing great people to serve on boards and commissions is a hard work. We need more people doing the good job 
that Dr. Robinson will do. And um, it's just, uh, we're, we're lucky for people that come forward. And I was delighted to see her application come through. I remember seeing it come through, I think about at 1042 at PM at night. <laughs> and we were talking the next morning. And so doctor, um, we know your service will be notable and great. We appreciate very much you stepping forward to do this. Hannah Robinson spoke to the board about why she applied for the board position. Thank you, council members, for your vote of confidence today. I'm very excited to become the newest member of the Board of Health. I did apply for this position twice, once in May of 2023, and did not hear anything, and decided two weeks ago to pursue uh, this again, and persistence does pay off. I'm a graduate of Indiana University School of Medicine. I'm a board-certified family physician with 24 years experience. I have treated thousands of patients. Uh, I have thousands of patient visits per year. I have interactions with those patients, uh, and they also bring concerns to me as constituents. I have my finger on the pulse of our community and am ready to serve. As you know, the Indiana legislature in 2023 passed Senate Bill 4 and Monroe County received $1,577,217. In 2024, Monroe County will most likely opt in for health first funds in the amount of three to $4 million for 2025. As a doctor and scientist with a business acumen, my mission is to work with the board members to ensure that every dollar of these monies is well spent. Our public health programs have to be the most robust possible. There is much work to be done. Priorities for 2024 are to identify how to meet the requirements for Senate Bill 4. Salaried positions make up a large portion of this budget, defining job descriptions for each position, gathering data to assess where we where our needs are and processing data to create the required reports for the state are all crucial tasks that we must accomplish relatively quickly. Monroe County's public health programs are in transition and will also need to have staffing expansion proposals ready to secure the funds for 2025. I believe in people power to make positive change. We can work together to accomplish this. The council voted unanimously to approve the appointment. The next Monroe County Council meeting will be held on February 27th. At the Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting on February 12th, Capital Projects Manager Dan Hudson requested approval for Wessler Engineering to provide an asset management capital improvement plan for the Monroe Water Treatment Plant. I'd like the board to consider Wessler uh, study to do an asset management uh, improvement plan and a capital improvement plan for the uh, Monroe water treatment plant uh, for $232,000. Uh, the project will basically rank all of the major pieces of equipment by risk of failure and potential of failure for each one and give us a score. Uh, they will also develop a capital improvement plan for the major items that need repair, not in, in addition to the plant, but for repair of the plant. Uh, they're going to give us costs, construction costs, and the study will be used primarily 
for the upcoming rate study that's going to happen this year. The board unanimously approved the contract with Wessler Engineering. Later in the meeting, pre-treatment coordinator Jason Wenning gave an update on the wastewater monitoring program. We started back in June of 2020 monitoring wastewater for uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, and we've continued that program since then, um, and since then we've expanded out a little bit. We're currently part of three different programs uh, doing wastewater sampling. Um, one's with a company called Verily, uh, their program Wastewater Scan, um, which is in conjunction with Emory and Stanford. We're collecting for them from our Dillman plant four times a week. Um, they've expanded from COVID to, we are up to one, two, three, four, five, six different um, diseases or viruses that they're looking for now. Um, and we're reporting that to them four times a week. We're getting results back generally within a week on those. Um, we're contributing to uh, the State Department of Health. Um, they have a sampling program as well um, that is in conjunction with the CDC news program, which has been the main uh, repository for all these COVID samples since, um, since the program began. Um, and their program is just COVID at this point. Um, we're submitting there twice a week um, from both the Dillman and Blucher plants. And then we're also continuing our partnership with Dr. Greaves' lab at IU. Uh, we're collecting samples for him twice a week from four different sites uh, around the city. And um, we're getting those analyzed for uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, influenza, and RSV. Um, at this point, um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions anybody has about the program. Board member Kirk White asked where the public can find the results of the sampling. Winning responded. So the samples from Dr. Greaves' lab, um, those are posted um, on Socrata through the city's Be Clear portal. Um, right now, I will say the Dr. Greaves' lab results are a couple weeks behind, um, they had some lab shortages as far as staffing goes, so they're a little behind on turning those around. However, the results from IDOH, uh, those are all put into, again, the CDC news program. Um, you can Google it. They actually have a, a data report page. You can go in. Um, you can uh, go ahead. You can drill down to county level and actually plant level um, and see what our most recent results are for Blucher Pool or Dillman Road. Similarly, with wastewater scan, um, you can go to verily.com. Um, they also have uh, a data reporting site there where you can drill down to uh, plant level data for both of our wastewater plants, and, um, and that will give you up-to-date information. Um, I just checked it this morning, and they have everything as of last Thursday's reporting. So nothing yet for this week, obviously, but, uh, but yeah, those do stay up to date. The next Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting will be held on February 26. The Ellettsville Town Council approved a motion to amend Salary Ordinance 23-18 after a debate surrounding an overtime pay clause led to the clause being struck. The clause authorized time-and-a-half overtime pay for employees working more than eight-hour workdays. Councilmember William Ellis called the clause into question, noting that non-government employees don't have the same policy. The state of Indiana only requires time-and-a-half for working more than 40 hours per week.
that's not the way it works in the real world. And I mean, for the utilities, I can understand as an incentive, but everybody else, I don't know why they're covered under this eight-hour day thing. Town manager Mike Farmer responded that the policy was enacted around 1999 to incentivize utilities employees to come in for emergencies after hours. He suggested that it might be possible to reword the clause to focus specifically on such situations. We could change the wording and try to manipulate the words to make sure it's just for call-outs for snow and main breaks and after-hour emergencies, but that's the intent of of it anyway, is after-hour emergencies. So um, it would be frowned on to just call somebody in just so they could get paid time and a half like clerical staff. Councilmember Scott Oldham mentioned that the current policy bars police and firefighters from receiving overtime, especially when they take personal time off work. He thinks that the policy should be made equal for all city employees. And if it's going to be good for all of them, why would it not be good for the entire town? Or why don't we go back to the reverse system? And this is where we get ourselves into that William's pointing out is we've got different circumstances for different groups of people. And again, the, the adage of, hey, I took off Tuesday because it was 45 and I had to do stuff around the house. Oh, no, all of a sudden we got this snowstorm that came up and Saturday night I got nine inches worth of snow. But you don't get the overtime for nine inches of snow, but you get an hour and a half worth of overtime for a meeting you knew was coming up at the end of the month. Again, it, it's, I'm not faulting you for that and I'm not trying to take that away from you, but we can't continue to have that system that's twofold. It's either got to be one or the other. Or we have to line up the personnel policy who's eligible for overtime and who's not, and under what circumstances. The council ultimately decided to strike the clause from the salary ordinance amendment, instead moving it to the personnel policy. The salary ordinance amendment passed unanimously after removal of the clause, approving a clause that ensures time and a half overtime pay for work that exceeds 40 hours in a week. The Ellettsville Town Council will meet again on February 26th. Now it's time for Dark Past, Bright Future, a segment produced by Bring It On's Liz Mitchell featuring accounts of Black history that often go overlooked. For more, we turn to Liz Mitchell on today's edition of the WFHB Local News. bright future. Lessons in African-American history that you won't read about in any textbook. Telling the stories of the struggle of those who came before us to build a better path to a brighter future for all of us. A slave was born in the year 1809 to a mulatto slave by the name of Amy. He would grow up to become a well-respected and successful business owner who operated several barber shops and owned about 15 slaves. By the year 1850, 
12% of all free persons of color owned slaves in Mississippi. Here is the story of William T. Johnson of Natchez, Mississippi. It is believed the father of William T. Johnson was a white plantation owner named William Johnson. This man took advantage of the 1814 Emancipation Law which said, Slave owners in Mississippi Territory could free their slaves with the approval of the Territorial Assembly. And in February of that year, he publicly posted his intention to free his female slave, Amy. On March the 20th, 1814, Amy was emancipated. She took her former master's last name. He bought a small house for her and her two children, where she set up a business that became somewhat successful. William T., her son, had to remain a slave due to his age. At that time, the law prohibited the emancipation of minors. It was not until February the 20th, 1820, that he was liberated. In the meantime, Adelia, Amy's daughter, and William T.'s sister was released from bondage. The year was 1818. By the year 1820, Adelia Johnson was married to a free Negro named James Miller. He was a barber. Young William T. became his apprentice. Eventually, William T. opened his own barbershop in Port Gibson, Mississippi. Then he purchased the Natchez, Mississippi barbershop from his brother-in-law, James Miller. The purchase price? $300. In the year 1831, William married Anne, a mulatto. Anne had been given her freedom from her master, who was also her father. His name was Gabriel Tensioner. Anne's mother was Harriet Battles, a free slave. She owned slaves. Before her death, she emancipated a few of them, but decided to leave a few slaves to William T. In her will, William T. and Anne were married 20 years, had 11 children. The youngest was a month old when he, William T., was murdered over a land dispute. But during his lifetime, Will T. believed in education and insisted that his children would be taught by the best. So he hired out tutors, but eventually sent them to New Orleans, Louisiana, to receive a formal education. William T. had maintained a careful and detailed financial record of his business and his personal life. He kept diaries. He made notes of everyday events that revealed bits and pieces of the daily life in Natchez, Mississippi. A about those citizens during that time. The diary would remain a secret until 1935 when it was discovered in the attic by, in the family home by a daughter-in-law. The home that William T. built is located at 2010 State Street, Natchez, Mississippi. The structure was the family home for more than 100 years and it's still standing today. 
In his diary, Wim had talked about having to sell one of his slaves because that slave, Stephen, could not stay out of the bottle. He also talked about giving whippings to some of the female slaves. This was Wilm T. Johnson of Natchez, Mississippi. This concludes this edition of Dark Past, Bright Future. You've been listening to Dark Past, Bright Future, exploring the many different shades of African-American history because the true history of our people is more complex than black and white. In the words of the Negro National Hymn, sing a song full of the hope that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Elise Perry, Kelsey Peace, and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Dark Past Bright Future is produced by Liz Mitchell. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Kelsey Peace. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. 
feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, longer.